Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Revelation 10, 8-11 Welcome to Tell Me the Story with Blaze Webster and Rowdy Wind. Join us for a weekly study of the Bible as we read verse by verse with the original context and languages at the forefront, illuminating the stories at hand. Over the last weekend, Blaze and I participated in the 2022 OCABS Biblical Scholarship Symposium. At this symposium, a variety of biblical scholars present their work. Blaze and I both presented, and over the next couple of weeks here on the podcast, starting today, you're going to hear us read our essays for you, our listeners. So without any further ado, here is my essay entitled The Ultimate Spiritual Gifts Test. Those who belong to a modern church culture are likely familiar with the church's recent obsession with spiritual giftings within the context of fitting people into programmatic roles in the church. For instance, let's say someone gets involved at a church and a church leader gives them a website link to take a personality test that determines their spiritual gifts. The website claims to be inspired purely by the content of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians and his letter to the Romans. However, once they get into the quiz, they see mentions of all sorts of gifts and abilities that Paul didn't mention anywhere in his letters. The purpose of the giftings quiz is to make the individual feel valued and unique, while also providing a means of compartmentalizing the individual into a specific function for the benefit of the church organization. This attitude even goes so far as to misrepresent Paul in many a Sunday sermon. In churches across the United States, one may hear the spiritual gifts described as, and likened to, having superpowers. We Christians have received supernatural favor and can do anything because we love God. For the sake of clarity, if it isn't obvious, I want to make it plain that the title is indeed a joke, and I will not be giving you a link to any personality test except maybe a, which Star Wars character are you? Because frankly, that is more fun. In all seriousness, the title satires a mindset that I believe to be contrary to Scripture's premise. I won't be covering the history of this mindset and its development because it is more likely than not tied to modern and postmodern individualism and the never-ending quest of self-discovery that many of us become convinced we are on. This entire premise is not scriptural, so my aim is not to criticize it, but to demonstrate a more honest interpretation of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which is where most of this culture is born from. To hear Paul faithfully and with honesty, we must hear him as he is intending to be heard in his letter. He is writing to a church that does not yet have the scriptural ear, much less a scriptural attitude. Throughout the letter, leading up to the infamous chapter 12, he is completely making known his expectations for the Corinthians and how he sees their conformity or nonconformity to scriptural teaching or as he puts it, being spiritual. Therefore, we must hear all the chapters leading up to chapter 12 in ignorance of our knowledge of any theology or ways in which the Old Testament spirit is presented in Scripture. 
we must play the part of a Corinthian, as Paul speaks differently to the Corinthians than how he would to a seasoned rabbi of his age. We modern scholars would certainly like to think of ourselves as comparable to those rabbis, but we cannot. We must put away what we think we know and be a Corinthian, an infant in Christ. When we hear Paul in this way, when we hear what he is communicating to the Corinthians, we can potentially liken it to our understanding of the biblical premise that the Spirit is the mighty wind of God that inspires, guides, and destroys, but most important of all is to hear his teaching that all the things the Spirit brings are the talents one should multiply, pun intended. The Gift Many, if not most people who take scripture seriously nowadays, understand the importance of hearing the original languages in which the texts were composed. I am writing to those people. To those who are unconvinced, there is a wealth of quality literature and podcasts that has been written on the subject, so I leave it to those authors to do the convincing, as my aim for this essay presumes an appreciation of the original text. The responsibility, then, that falls upon the hearer of Paul's letter is to correctly hear this concept of gift, which will be developed more later. But for introductory purposes, the hearer, the reader, should understand the Greek charisma, from the verb charizomi, both coming from charis, which is the translation of the Hebrew chen for favor or grace. The verbal root which that comes from is chanan, which is to deal graciously with or to show favor to. However, the translation doesn't seem to have carried over in the verbal form because the related verb in Greek, karizomi, for showing grace or bestowing favor, is an extension of the Greek noun karis. Some expressions of this basic idea in the Old Testament include, but are not limited to, Genesis 6-8, when we hear that Noah found chen in the eyes of the Lord. He and his family were preserved from destruction, and he goes on to be the functional savior of all the land animals due to God's directive. This is the ideal function, to receive favor, to bestow favor. Similarly, in Ruth chapter 2, she finds Cain in the eyes of Boaz, and when Ruth asks him why, Boaz essentially says to her that he heard report of Ruth's commitment to her mother-in-law when she could have stayed in her familiar homeland with her biological parents, but instead she chose to stay with her mother-in-law and come to a strange land. Ruth gives favor and then receives favor. In Esther chapter 7, verse 3, it says, Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found Chain with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition, and spare my people. This is my request. It is clear that the Hebraic idea is very simple and practical. One who finds grace receives gifts of blessing, sometimes is even saved from death. The typical formula is to receive grace and then carry the memory of that grace so that grace may be offered to others. In the New Testament, the verbal form is used in Luke's gospel when Jesus gives sight to the blind at the beginning of chapter 7. It is also the verb translated as the forgiving that the moneylender does for the debtors in Jesus's parable to the Pharisee who acts self-righteously in light of the sinful woman anointing Jesus's feet at their dinner. In fact, all three occurrences of this verb, karizomi, in the Gospels are in this particular chapter of Luke. This word also appears in the book of Acts and frequently throughout Paul's letters and appears to be a strictly Pauline term. Taking the unarguable Pauline influence over Luke and Acts into consideration, it seems clear that this word is particular to Paul's teaching 
and is likely rooted in his understanding of the scriptures he so often references. The noun, charisma, which comes from this verb, refers to a gift freely given by God, but with an assumed function that the gift must be reciprocated by the receiver into the larger community as a whole. The word seems to be historically unique to the New Testament, having not been propagated as a concept any earlier in classical Greek literature. Therefore, Paul is likely using a colloquialism or creating an entirely new word based on the noun charis in order to teach the concepts of grace and the special gifts of the Spirit. This is especially evident in the rhythms of his writing in Romans 5. In verse 15, he pulses between charisma and the more common Greek word for gift, dorea. I assert that he does this to teach a uniquely scriptural concept, one that is put in the simplest of terms in 1 Corinthians 12. I will now quote Romans 5:15 through 17 and reinsert the Greek words in place of the English translations of gift and grace, using the lexical forms instead of the grammatically appropriate versions for the sake of, of hearing it in an English translation. Romans 5:15 through 17 in the ESV says, But the free gift, Godisma, is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace, caris, of God and the free gift, Torea, by the caris of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift, Torea, is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift, charisma, following many trespasses, brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace, charis, and the free gift, dorea, of righteousness, reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. This is the establishment of charisma as a key term for Paul's gospel teaching, and arguably where we should turn when we are asked about a spiritual gift. It is the sum of the following concepts. Charis, the grace of God that delivers from God and Christ, the dorea, gift of righteousness. Therefore, in totality, the charisma are the gifts given by God pertaining to the justification found through faith in Christ. This understanding is the anchor for a strictly New Testament-informed understanding of Paul in 1 Corinthians. The elaboration, however, that I just discussed, found in Romans, is discussed here for the sake of our reflection back into 1 Corinthians to avoid confusion. But as I will show, Paul is equally descriptive in 1 Corinthians in the way he discusses the Spirit of God and the gifts it brings. A Church of Infants When a typical scripturally uninformed person is asked about their spiritual gifts, they are normally pointed to 1 Corinthians 12 to seek answers and look for what they identify with. Not only is this confusing, but it is completely incomplete. It would be like asking a chef to cook you a meal in your home, but instead of showing them where all the necessary ingredients are in the kitchen, you hide all of those away, only to direct them to the spice cabinet with your best wishes for a positive outcome. They will likely have a difficult time making anything worth its salt. When we look at chapter 12 alone for answers, we are spooning heaps of spice into our mouths and calling it nutritious. So instead, let us start in chapter 1, which, for the sake of this analogy, is the acquiring of ingredients for a nutritious meal. I realize pushing through an entire 11 chapters can seem like an overwhelming amount of material, but it is in the spirit of this essay to be inconvenienced by the teaching in order to understand the teaching. Likewise, it is appropriate to repay inconvenience for inconvenience, as the swath of poor biblical teaching on this matter has caused many a great inconvenience. 
This will by no means be a complete commentary on the letter, but an overview of the contextual content that informs the focus of the essay, a more scriptural understanding of spiritual gifts in light of their explanation in chapter 12. Paul's opening address to the Corinthians, despite his initial expression of thanksgiving and faith in God, features an admonishment from the outset because the church is squabbling and dividing into factions under the banners of their different teachers, while their teachers are contrastingly united under the rule of faith, according to Paul. In chapter 2, Paul elaborates on his basic explanation of the Spirit of God. This chapter is extremely important for understanding the Pauline concept in chapter 12. First, he reminds the Corinthians that he did not come to them with lofty speech or wisdom, but only Christ and him crucified, in a demonstration of the Spirit and power of God, so that their faith would not rest in Paul's eloquence, but in the power of God. He goes on to say that the mature, or the teleos in Greek, the perfect or complete people, receive the hidden wisdom of God that the worldly leaders did not understand. He will establish later whether or not the Corinthians are this type of people. Then he quotes Isaiah 64, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Paul claims that these hidden things were revealed through the Spirit, as the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God, and that only the Spirit of God can know the things of God, just as the only thing that can know the true thoughts of a person is the Spirit of that person. Therefore, since he and the apostles have received the Spirit of God, they may understand the things Garizomi, or freely given by God. So they impart that wisdom not by human words, but by wisdom taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. He finishes this portion with the caveat that a person who is natural cannot understand spiritual things. In Greek, that is psychikos de anthropos, which is a man of the psyche, which is, of course, a translation of the Hebrew nefesh, both meaning in their simplest and purest forms, breath, the breath that indicates a person is alive. So we are dealing with psyche versus pnevma, or in Hebrew, nefesh and ruach. This isn't about higher levels of human consciousness. It is a functional separation that Paul is making, which has its roots in the Old Testament. As Paul has clearly stated, it is about whether or not one is mature beyond childish squabbling. If someone is only concerned with their psyche, nefesh, their breathing, they will serve only themselves as they are fueled by their base survival instincts. However, if they grow beyond that into maturity, they can then hear and accept the matters of the pnevma, or spirit, becoming spiritual people in their own right because they are concerned with the wind of God and the breathing that happens outside of their own body. Chapter 3 is one of the places in a modern Bible where chapter divisions do harm. For if one took a break from reading at the end of chapter 2, they would miss the slap in the face that is verse 1 of chapter 3. It says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. So all of that elaboration in the previous chapter that theologians want to run with into the exciting world of philosophy and metaphysics is immediately null and void. We hearers must put ourselves in the shoes of the Corinthians. If Paul is calling them people of the flesh, he is calling us people of the flesh. If he is calling them infants in Christ, he is calling us infants in Christ. He goes on to say that he himself and the other teachers of the Corinthians have heard from are merely servants to God, and their labor is pure vanity if not for the growth God provides. He then warns them to take care how they proceed, 
to build with appropriate materials upon the foundation he laid, which is Christ by God's grace. The end of this passage comes with a warning that any who thinks they are wise should become a fool so that they may become wise, which is evidence of how the text extends to us who all think they know more than the infantile Corinthians. If Paul is writing to this people that he just described, we have to assume that we ourselves are those people because we are his audience, the audience he wrote to. Chapter 3 ends how 4 begins, with an imperative that they should not lift up any man to boast in. Chapter 4 clarifies that the teachers of the Corinthians should be regarded as mere servants, or better translated, slaves of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. They are those who share what they have been given according to the faithfulness of God, not to be judged now, but out of faithfulness to receive their commendation at the time of judgment. Therefore, like their teachers, the stewards of the mysteries, the people of Corinth cannot become puffed up against one another because they too have only that which they received. And according to Paul, compared to the apostles, they have received greatly. For the apostles are the scum of the world, the refuse of all things, while the Corinthians have so much more, but still do not understand. Chapter 5 is straightforward. Now that Paul has established that he does not think of any of these members at Corinth as spiritual people, he will admonish them for the behavior that makes him think this way about them. If his original statements were a mere warning, this chapter is hot coals of judgment. A man in the church has taken his father's wife, and Paul makes it clear that this is not only reprehensible from a spiritual point of view, but even the surrounding culture would rebuke such an act. What is worse than the simple act admonished by Paul is the fact that the church acts arrogantly about housing such a defiling person. He tells them to cast this man out lest his behavior leavens the whole lump of their congregation. Chapter 6 features Paul admonishing a phenomenon occurring in the Corinthian church that, whether intentionally or not, summarizes exactly what it means to be a psychicos de anthropos, a natural man, which Paul mentioned in chapter 2. The Corinthians are pursuing lawsuits against one another under the judgment of local authorities instead of the saints in the church. And Paul points out that this is for their shame, because the people have received the wisdom of God, and as such should judge trivial worldly cases with that wisdom. The fact that they go to local authorities outside the church shows they're forsaking this wisdom. What's more is that a lawsuit in and of itself shows the people's lack of wisdom, as it would be better to suffer wrongdoing and defrauding than to defraud and cause wrong for others. According to Paul, those authorities they bring their lawsuits to are unrighteous, as many of them are sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, etc., and the Corinthians, too, were among these unrighteous until they were washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Paul then speaks one of his famous declarations, that a believer should not be dominated by those things which are lawful. Despite them being lawful, one cannot be dominated by these. Sexual immorality, then, is sex that dominates or controls an individual, thus rendering them joined to their sexual partner as opposed to being joined to God. And this is worse than other sins, since this is a sin that is against one's own body, which is not even their own, but was purchased by God and is a temple for his spirit. Therefore, to defile the temple is the most egregious sin, which is, once again, the sin of sexual immorality that Paul discusses. Chapter 7 opens with a famous passage where Paul answers the Corinthians' questions about sexual morality and marriage. 
Naturally, this is a closure to all of his admonishments toward them and their blatant sexual immorality and or their inability to treat it as the sin that it is. This portion of the chapter is not entirely relevant to the focus of this essay, but what is, is the following portion. In verse 17, Paul tells the Corinthians that each should live the life the Lord assigned to them, to which God called them. The uncircumcised should stay uncircumcised, the circumcised should stay as such. The enslaved is enslaved to God, and the free man is likewise enslaved to God, yet both should not seek to change their worldly station. In whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God. Chapter 8 essentially instructs the Corinthians not to eat food sacrificed to idols, if and only if it offends the neighbor. According to Paul, we know as those under God's instruction that there is one God, the Father, and one Lord Jesus Christ, so eating food offered to false gods is of no import. But if one who does not have our knowledge of the truth sees us doing so, they will be encouraged to maintain the wicked practice, seeing no fault in doing so. Therefore, by our knowledge, the outsider is destroyed. Chapter 9 depicts a compelling look at a scriptural attitude toward work and wages. Paul discusses the work he put into the church at Corinth. He is owed a wage for the work, and he cites many examples, both culturally and scripturally, but he says these things as a defense for the work of apostleship and to instruct the Corinthians on the matter, not to make a claim to the reward he and the other apostles are owed. He makes it clear that the apostles, those who received the grace of God and things revealed by the Spirit, cannot ask for the reward they are owed, lest it become a hindrance to their mission of spreading the gospel message. The true reward, then, is to present the gospel free of charge, so as to not make full use of Paul's right in the gospel. The crux of accepting God's gift being free from the world's enslavement is that one must be a slave to all. Chapter 10 serves us well to get an effective summary of Paul's premise regarding the things he has said about the Spirit of God, though it is important not to forget that he is teaching a people who are, according to him, non-spiritual. They cannot fully grasp what he is talking about. However, he does not leave them empty-handed. He does provide some teaching on the Spirit in this chapter, and the most concise and digestible teaching will come two chapters from now. He tells them that their fathers, meaning their spiritual fathers, the people of God before the New Testament era, were all under the cloud of the Exodus, and all passed through the sea, baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. However, they ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, and the rock they drank from was Christ. This story of the Israelites was written down as an example to them so they do not become disobedient and displease God. Paul later references the Eucharistic meal that Christians partake in, and it is clearly linked to the consumption of spiritual food and drink by the Israelites he mentioned at the outset. However, this chapter ends up being about fleeing from idolatry, eating food sacrificed to idols, and how the Eucharistic meal is different from idolatry, as idolatry involves meals offered to demons and one cannot participate at both tables. Likewise, one must not partake in idolatrous meals when and if the individual becomes aware of the fact that the meal was offered in sacrifice. He is providing breadcrumbs about his teaching on the Spirit, leading us into chapter 12, but the matters of the Spirit are not his primary concern in this chapter. He concludes the chapter by commending the Corinthians to please everyone, giving no offense to Jew, Greek, or the church, doing all things to the glory of God. Chapter 11 is the chapter that discusses head coverings in the church, as well as the fact that the Corinthians are partaking in communion in an unworthy manner. The head coverings portion has caused confusion for much of church history, and I don't aim to solve the debate here. Paul seems to make many statements that are contradictory at worst and blurry at best. What is likely is that he is referencing the Corinthians' Greek cultural perspective on hair being a part of the human genitalia 
And his confusing statements are meant to communicate a scriptural response to that uh, worldly purview. He calls on them to judge for themselves what is right with this new information he provides. His second main point is that the Corinthians, reflecting their generally divisive and non-spiritual behavior, come together to partake in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, that is, in gluttony and disregard for the neighbor. After he reminds them of the sanctity of the Eucharist, the 11-chapter-long amalgamation of teaching, admonishment, and exhortation comes to a brief pause before he makes clear what he has previously left vague. Now concerning spiritual gifts. From the outset, I should make it clear that Paul's opening statement in chapter 12 is blatantly misrepresented in English translations. In the ESV, it is rendered, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. All of the common translations follow suit with this addition of the word gifts. In the Greek text, the first phrase is which is now concerning the spiritual things or matters of the spirit because pneumatikon is the word pneumatikos in the plural genitive. Here, in verse 1, it is functioning as a nominal adjective. The English edition of the word gifts is nothing more than an addition. Why is this important to point out? It's important because, believe it or not, our hermeneutics professors were right. Our Hebrew, Akkadian, and Greek professors were all right. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, all who belong to the field of biblical studies and have sat at the feet of great scholars have likely heard it said that adding a word to a translation that was not present in the original can quickly lead to a misrepresentation of the original intent of the author. Bing, bada boom, this is a textbook example. We rarely discuss this error because so many of us have grown accustomed to the interpretation that it spawns, either intentionally or unintentionally. This interpretation I refer to is what I discussed in the opening of this paper, that we hear gift through a reflexive measurement due to our modern self-serving Western culture. A gift is only valuable for its ability to serve me, the individual, and my ego. However, the last 11 chapters of Paul's teaching for the Corinthians is completely opposed to this mindset, and the addition of the word gifts in verse 1 shows a complete ignorance of that fact. The translators are sticking their foot out in front of Paul so that his words trip over their ideology. Take away the prefacing concept of gift in verse 1 that leads the modern hearer down the wrong path, and the actual teaching of this chapter is so clear that we cannot leave mistaken. Now concerning spiritual things. Starting again in verse 1 with a correct rendering of paridetón pneumatikon. Now concerning the spiritual things, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. It is plainly stated that Paul does not want to leave the Corinthians uninformed regarding matters of the Spirit in general. He's not talking about these gifts. He has talked about the Spirit in previous chapters, but only in a vague manner that might lead the Corinthians to have more questions than answers, and Paul is likely aware that this could inspire them to concoct wild theories about the supernatural Spirit, which would be a total deviation from his very practical instruction. One cannot understand matters of the Spirit if they are a natural person concerned only with their well-being. Therefore, in this chapter, he is giving them a base explanation of the Spirit of God that they don't quite understand, and this serves as one of the most concise and well-communicated descriptions of the Spirit of God in Scripture as a whole. He starts out by declaring that no one can curse Jesus whilst speaking by the Spirit of God, nor can one say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. This likely serves to reassure the Corinthians that if they do not understand the Spirit as a concept, they should not question its presence. 
Likewise, with Paul calling them infants in Christ and comparing them to natural people who cannot grasp spiritual things, they should remember that purely affirming in one's heart that Jesus is Lord is evidence of the Holy Spirit in them, and Paul is not suggesting otherwise. Considering all of this admonishment they received in the letter, this is no doubt a comfort, that despite all of their childish tendencies and sinful behavior, if they have confessed Jesus is Lord, according to Paul, they can rest assured that the presence of the Spirit in their lives is true. Much of that sinful behavior, according to verse 2, is tied to them from their past lives before coming into the faith, and Paul is making it clear that his disapproval of their behavior is not by any means an accusation that they are without the Spirit. Next, he says that there are a variety of gifts, which is the word discussed earlier, charisma. There are a variety of free gifts given by God, but it is the same Spirit. There are a variety of types of service, sometimes translated ministries, but the same Lord. And there are a variety of activities, operations, or work. As in, there are a variety of things to put effort toward, but the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Now, in order to practice what I preach, I will simply quote the remainder of the chapter because the entirety of the letter up until this point has been summarized and called to mind in the previous paragraphs, and my hope is that it will have some effect on how this particular chapter is heard, not as a list of abilities and powers, but an explanation of the active participation of the Spirit in the life of a community of people. The remainder of the chapter goes as follows. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between Spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God is appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. 
and I will show you still a more excellent way. I'd like to point out two distinguishing details before moving on. First is that when Paul lists the various gifts, they are not actually referred to as gifts. They are manifestations of the Spirit. Yes, they are gifts, as evidenced later, but they are not the only spiritual gift, per se, because remember, a spiritual gift is anything the Spirit does or gives to a person. The manifestations of the Spirit are the bestowed, quote-unquote, abilities. Second is that the last verse of chapter 12 says, earnestly desire the higher gifts, which in Greek is earnestly desire the mesonot gifts, which has the connotation of greatness in the context of size. So I greatly discourage the interpretation of this being Paul telling them to desire the more desirable, better gifts. This, as should be obvious from the passage, is contrary to everything he just said about the way they should understand the spiritual gifts. He is instead saying that they should desire the more voluminous gifts, the type of gifts that allow them to perform more good works. That is what all of this is about. A seed is only good if it is planted and nurtured into a healthy plant. A gift, in this sense, is only good if it is fostered and used for the good of the community. As it says, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. This interpretation that I'm advocating for is clearly evidenced in the next and final chapter that I'm going to elaborate on in a complete manner. The greatest of these is love. Paul carries into the next chapter, chapter 13, with what is for us the final statement of chapter 12. It is, and I will show you a still more excellent way. The more excellent way we come to see is the way of love. He is concluding his teaching on spiritual matters, gifts, ministries, works, etc. with the full stop of love. He references the previously mentioned gifts, tongues of men and angels, prophetic powers, understanding of all mysteries and knowledge, faith, and self-sacrificing. He says that one can have and or do all of these things, but without love, they are vanity. The remainder of this chapter is one of the most famous passages of biblical literature. I'm going to quote it below and go ahead and read it, uh, but before it is read, I must insist on the fact that this chapter, like every other, is building upon what came before it. Paul is communicating the fullness of what the gifts, ministries, abilities, and works of the Spirit are really all about, therefore the common good, and they are to be multiplied in love for one another as brothers and also for the neighbor outside the church. Paul's conclusion for what the Corinthians are to do with these gifts received by the Spirit and the manifestation of the Spirit in them goes as follows. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. The Corinthian and the modern reader who submits to Paul's letter and makes themselves a Corinthian in order to hear his instruction will hear this closing passage not as a cute sentiment worthy of a wedding speech or pillow embroidery, but as an unapologetic, no stone left unturned measure of accountability. 
Anyone who hears this chapter and the chapters before it should now know the scriptural measure of love and that any good thing given to them by the Spirit is not for their pride or individuality, but it is to be used according to this measurement. If it is not used and held to an account in accordance with this measurement, it is not love. It is nothing. To return now to the topic of spiritual gifts for the sake of concluding an essay, while seeming to be in line with the scholarly approach, would actually demonstrate a flaw in hermeneutics. From the outset, my aim was to present a more faithful interpretation of spiritual gifts, but what I have necessarily done is allowed the text to do so, with some aid provided for the original Greek words and culture, of course, but those additions were minimal. Throughout this analysis, it has been made abundantly clear, especially by the recent few paragraphs, that spiritual gifts should never have been the focus. So I will purposefully cease my attachment to them as the focus of my essay. Paul's explanation in chapter 12 serves as a conclusion to several proportionally larger passages of admonishment and instruction. Therefore, the spiritual gifts are nothing more than a reminder that we do nothing by our own power. All gifts, ministries, all duties are bestowed by the Spirit, and they come with an assumed and universal charge to reflect the charisma, the freely given gift, back out into the world for the common good. That is the way of love. This should have been and should always be the focus for the hearer of Scripture. In this, may we all find peace. All glory to God. Amen. An Invitation Instead of hearing chapter 12 alone, we have taken in all chapters of 1 Corinthians that come before chapter 12, and we have sought to understand it, whether the messages were totally relevant to our desires of Scripture or not. My desire for Scripture was to learn more about what it says regarding spiritual gifts. My desire was also to write a nice essay about spiritual gifts based on what I learned. However, somewhere along the line, as I was planning this essay, I remembered that it is poor practice to beg questions of Scripture. If a child comes to their parent with a complicated moral question from school and the parent has to choose between offering a short and simple answer that satisfies the child's hunger or telling them a long-winded story that puts the dilemma into context, the child would surely benefit more in the long run from the latter. The inner workings of a story bring to light the hidden nuances of the moral question that might not have otherwise been considered, ultimately reducing the previously complicated matters into simple truths and valuable lessons for the child to remember. That is essentially what we have accomplished with this approach to 1 Corinthians. We heard the whole thing in its entirety. I could have sought the quick and easy path to satisfy my momentary hunger, but I didn't. I could have googled, what does the Bible say about spiritual gifts? And copied down a few verses and given my thoughts on them for the sake of an essay. But I didn't. Instead, I sat at the feet of the Apostle Paul and opened my ears for the entire letter, knowing that spiritual gifts would come up eventually, based on what I had heard before about the letter. I sought to understand the entirety of his teaching. So when spiritual gifts did come up, I heard Paul's words in a way I haven't before. And I see much more clearly now. As it says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Although Paul and I are not talking about exactly the same thing, I still borrow his words, because seeing myself in Scripture more clearly is the best way to describe the result of this approach to Scripture. This is what I have learned. Chapter 12 is not meant to be a mirror, but a window. 
It is not about celebrating the cool abilities the Spirit gives us, but it is about recognizing that every ability, work, ministry, manifestation of the Spirit, everything is a gift from the Spirit for an individual to use for the sake of the common good. If the individual fails to do this, then they are one without love, and they are nothing. I, Rowdy Wind, desired to write a compelling article for a biblical scholarship symposium that would find recognition and acclaim, finally clearing the air about what exactly spiritual gifts are all about. In this desire, I sought purely to contribute a good opinion via my superior interpretation, and I did not have love in so doing. This is how I see myself more fully thanks to the text, and I changed my approach because of the text, and perhaps I can be an example for others. Therefore, I invite all who read this to approach Scripture in this way. In fact, I purposefully concluded the essay without acknowledging chapters 14 through 16, so start there. I presented the approach, and we have done it together, author and reader. Arise. Go finish the work. When you approach Scripture, you are at the feet of our Lord. Be humble of heart and hear all that He says, not just that which you are hungry for, as your stomach hungers for the wrong things. Hear scripture and do scripture to the glory of God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ who reigns forever and ever. Amen. This podcast is a production of the Ephesus School Network.